every time we go to God's Word, the words of our, and I certainly ask that every time I open this Word and stand in front of you, that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart honor God and guide us in the right direction. We're going to be in 1 Kings uh, chapter 3 today as we continue to, uh, to explore this life after David. And, um, and I'm having a little bit of trouble connecting to So we're having a little bit of technical difficulties with our slides, but um, Simon, if you could unfreeze it, go to the first slide. Just wait. Oh. Don't unfreeze it. Okay, don't unfreeze it. Nice. So we're going to be in First Kings chapter three, and we're going to be talking about the wisdom of, uh, of Solomon. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that that uh, we framed this in that Solomon began to ask for wisdom after he recognized what a mess his world was in. There was he engaged in a string of murders to avenge his father's uh, his father's death to, to enact his father's deathbed revenge wishes and then and establish his own kingdom and and he was and he was really asked to do something that was incredibly difficult as he started up. Um, can we go to the next one? Go to Matthew. Solomon was really asked to do something different, different, difficult because Solomon was the king of a relatively young monarchy. Okay, so all of these areas were, for most of the time since, since David, had, had had very loose allegiances. They were bound by ethnicity. They understood themselves to be Jews, um, uh, followers of the Lord. They were bound by religious ethics. They sort of did similar religious activities, but they didn't necessarily, in the way that we understand it, have a government. They didn't have borders in a nation state that would way that we would understand it as well. All this began to happen first in Saul, then in David, then in Solomon. So this is a relatively young monarchy. And then all of these different tribes and areas were used to doing things their own way. So it was very difficult for, for Solomon to solidify his own kingdom in the way that he understood. Now, this is a new idea and a new way of being for most of these people. But because this was a new way of being, this means that there weren't standards for how they understood kings to be. Uh, how they, uh, standards for how the people understood how kings were, were supposed to behave. There's an interesting thing in, in the tradition of the people of Israel. That as they left Egypt and became followers, uh, as they left Egypt and, and began to form their own people and they were given the law, one of the things that God said to them specifically was, you're not supposed to have a king. You're supposed to follow the rule of the Lord. And this is, this is demonstrated over and over again in the book of Judges. In fact, in the story of Gideon, which many of you know, Gideon has this accomplishment where he frees the people of Israel from their oppressors, the Midianites. And after he frees the people of Israel from their oppressors, the Midianites, the people of Israel say to him, hey, please become our king. And there's this great moment where King Gideon says, I will not be your king, nor will my sons be your king, but, but the Lord will be your king, your only king. That was the way it was supposed to be. But there was this allowance, and if we could go to the next slide, please. There was this allowance uh, in, within the company of the people of Israel, and with, even within the law, that when in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when you enter the Lord your God, the land your Lord your God is giving you, and take possession of it, and settle it, 
and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. It's a fascinating thing that is happening in the law. That even in the law, God is acknowledging that the people that he is calling to follow him are going to fail. They're not supposed to set up the king. They're not supposed to be like the people around them. But in the midst of this, God says, okay, if you're going to fail in this anyway, you're going to want to be like the people around you. When you get a king, he has to behave in this way. So he says, be sure, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord chooses. He must be among, from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of forces for himself, or make the people of Egypt the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you. You are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Go to the next one, please. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself a scroll on a scroll, a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord and his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right and to the left. And then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom of Israel. So from the very beginning, even though it's, this is a young, uh, a young uh, monarchy, from thousands of years beforehand, there is an understanding of how a king ought to behave. Can we go to the next one? So there are standards. So one limited military spending. The way that we understand this is because, because the first thing he says, he's got to be one of you, and then he's not to acquire more horses. The reason why, it, horses were military instruments. They weren't used for farming. That's what oxen and donkeys were for. Horses were a military instrument. So when he's saying to the king, when he's saying your king is not to acquire many horses, that means he's not to spend a huge chunk of his budget on military spending. Okay? So he's supposed to limit, the, limit military spending. Some, obviously, he says not to get too many horses, but there's a, there's a place that he's not supposed to go. Which is the mission of the king of Israel is not to have a, the world's largest standing army. He's supposed to have a recognition of historical air relations. Don't go back to Egypt. And the reason why they're not supposed to go back to Egypt is if you read the history of the people of Israel, as they were leaving Egypt as slaves, when it got hard, their first inclination was to like, oh, remember how great we had it in Egypt? Remember all the food that was in Egypt? Remember how awesome it was in Egypt? And there was this tendency within the people of Israel to have nostalgia for a time in history that never existed. They created in Egypt in their own minds that, that even though their freedom was limited, they, they had food in abundance, they had all the things that they wanted, they had everything that they could possibly Follow. None of that was true, but 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 they wanted it. So so that's why it was the job of the king of Israel to be like, no 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 no, that Egypt that you're longing for never really existed. We're not going back there. We're not going to Egypt again. He was supposed to have sound sexual ethics, and this comes from he was not supposed to have many wives. Okay, so many wives was understood in two different ways. One. Obvious, he's supposed to have some sort of limits on his own uh, his own sexual behavior. That's an understanding because the inclination of men when they're when they have unlimited power is to take advantage of that unlimited power in all of the worst ways that you can imagine. But the other way that that that, that, that was understood, in addition to that, was 
why taking many wives was a way of making alliances with all of the people around you and with all of the influence around you. So if you were to make an if you were to make another country your ally, you would take one of their daughters as your wife. If you wanted to make a rich person your ally, you would take one of his daughters as your wife. That was a way of having uh, alliances and influences from outside. God is instructing the people that their king is not supposed to make a ton of alliances with other people in this way. Why? Probably because he doesn't want to be influenced by people who do not know the Lord, who do not know the law, who do not know the way that he ought to behave. And he wants his allegiance and his desire as the king to be for God and his people, as opposed to the desires of all of the countries and fathers-in-law and, and, and wives of all of the people that he's been influenced by. So he's supposed to have limited alliances and influence. And then he's supposed to be a legal and religious scholar. The primary job of the people of, uh, of the king of Israel was to write down the law, the instruction of the Lord, into a scroll. Understand it. Understand what God required of his people. And to be able to, to give them wisdom in that way. And understanding this, understanding the standards that have existed for hundreds of years, which many of the people of Israel would have known, and certainly Solomon was expected to have known, is why it is so interesting to me that Solomon's story as king starts in this way. The last verse of 1 Kings chapter 2, the kingdom now was established in Solomon's hands. The first verse of 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. How does he start? Is there any flaws in the plan that you see? He married his daughter, he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, by political standards, this was a move that made a lot of sense. Egypt was a very powerful country on the southwestern border of Israel. As a new country, it, was, uh, it, was, it would have been uh, completely understandable for Egypt to say there's a new economic and possible military power developing way too close to us. Let's go smash them while we have the chance, and then we'll wipe them out. Solomon makes an alliance by, with them by marrying their daughter and saying, okay, we're safe on that end. Let's get the city, the temple, and the wall built. Then we're going to be good to go and we have some, uh, some, uh, some things established here. That is the worldly political wisdom that Solomon is using. They shared trade routes, sharing information. It was, it was, it's politically expedient to shore up relations with a regional ally. But knowing what we know, having just read what we read, and what many of the people of Israel knew, and what Solomon ought to have known, it changes the frame to the start of Solomon's reign. And it changes the frame for what we looked at last week was Solomon's request for, for, for wisdom. Because it's, it does say, when so began, and his entire reign. Now, one of the things that's going to happen as we look at 1 Kings and what Israel, uh, ancient, the literature of ancient Israel does, is when they tell a story, they give you kind of a, a, a praise or a synopsis of the story right at the top. And it's always evaluated in the terms of, like, how good a king was this person? And how good their reign was is based on, did the people follow the Lord or not? And it's interesting that this is the way Solomon's kingdom is evaluated. Solomon showed his love to the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. 
And the people that followed him burned sacrifice and burned incense in the high places. And it's interesting to ask, it's interesting when you look at the wording here, the word for instruction in Hebrew is Torah, which is the same word for law. So we understand that right off the bat, Solomon has gone to Egypt, married an extra lady, made alliances with a country that he's not supposed to be involved with, and then whose instruction does he follow? Whose law does he follow? David's. He's not supposed to follow David's law. He's supposed to follow God's law. Even though David knew the Lord, right, his job was to write down the law himself. It's no good to get your knowledge secondhand, right? That's helpful. But if you expect that all of your knowledge is going to come secondhand through somebody else, that's not the fullness of the wisdom of God, right? So we see where Solomon starts in bad in a rough place. Then we see that Solomon's reign was a mixed bag. He didn't lead the people as well as he could have. And all of this frames what happens next in the story. The murder, the alliances, the, 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 the worldly wisdom wisdom, the desire to do what is expedient and efficient and economically viable, leads us to this point where the king finally goes to Gideon to offer sacrifices. So immediately after all of that, that was the most important high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Then Gideon the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. If Solomon hadn't continued in his pattern of worldly wisdom, he would have asked for, like, okay, well, destroy all my enemies. You know, I would like a, the world's largest standing army. But Solomon does have a moment of wisdom where he says, Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. And now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servants here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern the people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And it's interesting that Solomon asked for this. It's a good thing for him to ask for. But it's also a thing that he should have known had he been studying the law of the Lord. He had been writing down the law of the Lord in a scroll as he was supposed to. If he hadn't been that religious scholar who dedicated his time in that way, the will and the discernment of the Lord would have been a little bit more plain to him. But the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and have not, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. I will give you what is translated in Hebrew as a lev kam venabon, a wise and discerning heart. Now this is interesting, right, as we talk about wisdom. Because I think Solomon understood wisdom to be the wisdom that made sense to the world, right? The kind of wisdom that accumulates horses and military power, the kind of wisdom that makes wise alliances, the kind of wisdom that, 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 that turns into an increased amount of resources and investment, worldly wisdom, wisdom which benefits that wisdom which is expedient and efficient and economically viable. 
But is that the wisdom of the Lord? Is the wisdom that makes sense to this world the wisdom that we're looking for as we navigate a messy world? Is that the wisdom that Solomon was meant to have as he guided his people? Because, let's be honest, we live in a confusing world, and there's lots of pressure on us to do what is efficient and expedient and economically viable. But what is important for us as followers of Jesus, what is true for us as followers of Jesus, and what we've been called to as followers of Jesus, is not necessarily what is expedient and efficient and economically viable. It's not necessarily the same thing. Because if we were going to talk about worldly wisdom, if we were going to talk about worldly standards for kings, it doesn't make sense to limit your military spending. Military spending is a great way to spur on your economy. If you want to get your economy going, the best way you can do that is go to war. Then you got people working in factories, you got people who are going to war, going to war they got to build stuff, you get this whole military industrial complex, like, like White Eisenhower said, that gets your economy rolling. And it makes sense, and it gives people the illusion of safety and security. By worldly standards, limited military spending makes no sense at all. You should have unlimited military spending. By worldly standards, is it important to recognize your historical relations, the, the, the ways that you failed in the past? Not really. It's, it's expedient and efficient and economically viable to have the shortest memory possible, right? Because that's the way that you make people not evaluate the decisions that you're making by any sort of, sort of standard. It just makes sense to keep going, forget about the past, it's irrelevant, let's even change it, let's, let's make this fluid. What makes sense and what, uh, what, is, what, what, is, what worldly wisdom does is to just destroy, burn whatever's come before you, uh, behind you, and only focus on the future. To have sound sexual ethics, well one, we don't even know what those are anymore, but two, who in the world is going to ever limit you in any way? So as a powerful person, do what powerful people do and take advantage of every opportunity that you have. That's worldly wisdom. It makes no sense to limit your alliances and your influences. It makes sense to have, to have, different, to have relationships and partnerships with every single country, every single corporation, every single wealthy person that you possibly can. And you're going to betray some of them along the way, but that is what is expedient and efficient and economically viable. Get in as many different pockets as you can, and then you can influence as many people as you can around the world. And why on earth, as a worldly wise king, would you invest any time in legal and religious scholarship? That's a waste of your time. You can outsource that to other people. You can outsource that to an entire department if you want to. But you should be spending your time as a, as a wise and worldly king, focusing your attention on, 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 on the political gamesmanship of making sure that your power and your influence grows, by making sure that you have people who answer to you in the right positions to turn the wheels of government, to turn the wheels of governing, to turn the influence of the people in the way that you want it to go at the very right time. That is worldly wisdom. The standards for a king that God has given Solomon do not make sense in Solomon's world. They do not make sense in our world. They are not wise by any standard that, that the world would give. Yet we, as followers of Jesus, have a different standard for wisdom. Why Paul says this, Do not deceive yourselves, it says in 1 Corinthians 3. If any of you think that you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness is God in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. 
God doesn't care what is efficient and expedient and economically viable. That is not his primary interest. That is not what he calls us to pursue. It is not efficient to send your son into the world to die on behalf of the world of a rebellious world gone astray. It is not expedient to send your to send the Holy Spirit in the world and wait two thousand years influencing people over the entire arc of human history to, to pursue you and to pursue justice. That is not an expedient way to do things. It is not economically viable to create a world where we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. But that is the world that God has created. And we as followers of Jesus need to understand and embrace the fact that what we value, what we are called to, to, to pursue beyond anything else, and what we are called to, to place as, a, 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 as more valuable than anything else is, is things that the world looks on as insane. We are not called to pursue what is efficient. We are not called to pursue what is expedient or economically viable. We are called to pursue the wisdom of the Lord. So what is the wisdom of the Lord? James says it this way. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds that in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. How many influencers in this world who are encouraging you to live your best life now are, are demanding and expecting you to pursue envy and selfish ambition? How many of them are saying, see what's out there in the world? It is yours, go get it. How many of them are saying, what is that deepest desire that you have in your heart? God wants you to have that too. Do not deny the truth. This is in us. This is in me. I have as much selfish ambition as anyone else, and I am an envious person. I deal with this. I have to repent of the sin of covetousness all the time. I, I see what other people have, and I want that. But that's not wisdom. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it's earthly and unspiritual and, and, and dare we say, even demonic. And it's fair for us even when we listen to spiritual leaders and people who do what I do and claim to be speaking from the Bible, is the wisdom that they are offering the wisdom of God, or is it wisdom that comes from bitter envy and selfish ambition? A fair question to ask. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. That is not efficient. It is not expedient to be impartial. It is not efficient to be peace-loving. It is not economically viable to be impartial and sincere. But that is the wisdom to which we have been called. That is the wisdom that we have been, uh, to, that we've been asked to pursue. That is the wisdom that, we, that is going to be inside us if we too have a wise and discerning heart. Uh, 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 I'm going to get the word wrong, so I want to say it properly. We want to have a wise and discerning heart. This is the kind of wisdom that we've been called to. 
And it's fair for us to ask ourselves the question as we go into our week, as we go into our day in a very complex world, to ask ourselves the question, is what we are pursuing pure? Is it peace-loving? Is it considerate? Is it submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere? It's an important question for us to ask. We're not going to have answers that are as clean as we like them to be. But this is what we this is the difficult task to which we've been called to reject that which is efficient, to reject that which is expedient, and to reject that which is primarily and only economically viable, and to pursue God's way. And seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all of these other things that we need will be added to us. That's the challenge. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm not living this on a day-to-day basis. I gotta fight envy and selfish ambition. I gotta fight desires that are out of whack and 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 things that are that 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 pull me in incorrect directions. But this is the thing to which we have been called. So it behooves us to pursue this and to think about how we're gonna find it on a day-to-day basis. Let's pray. God. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your ways, and we thank you that your standards are not the world's standards. And we repent of how we have tried to pursue the world's wisdom. We, we repent of how we've tried to pursue approval. We repent of how we've tried to pursue everything that is easy. And we ask, God, that you remind us again of what is truly important. We ask that you remind us again of what is truly good. And we ask that you remind us again of what is truly wise. Because without you, we can't know it. And without you, we, we lose all sense of direction. And we get, and we're damaging to ourselves and to others. So God, as we sing songs, as we meet at your table, remind us what is good and what is pure and what is wise and what is sincere and what is valuable now and for eternity. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.